Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Today's really special uh, for me and for someone else. Um, we're doing this sermon series through the parables uh, and noticing the ways that the parable actually like often leaves us with more questions and answers and Jesus sort of does it on purpose. Um, and parables are like a riddle, like they're kind of uh, uh, mysterious and provocative and so parables generate community because we have to turn to each other and say, what does that mean? Um, and the parable today, I think, is particularly fascinating because when you actually slow down and read it, you might, like me, realize that you've accidentally read it wrong your whole life. You're like, wait, what? Um, it's, a, it's the parable of the pearl of great price, and it's only two verses in Matthew, um, and there's something so wild and profound about this text. So I think we have it on slide, the text. All right, so this is it. This is the whole parable. Um, and in Matthew 13, there are a collection of a bunch of parables. Uh, so for sure, like responsibly, we could connect it back to the parable before and the parable ahead. But today we're just going to zoom in on this and notice what's there, but also notice what's not there. So in Matthew 13, it goes like this. And I, I just, I want us to just explore how um, provocative this parable is. And I'm going to unpack it a bit for you. But so it simply says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Period. We don't get to know what he did with the pearl once he had it. We don't know why he wanted the pearl. We don't know. There's a lot here that the, the parable does not say. So we have to be careful about how quickly we answer the question or how quickly we're like, well, the pearl is Jesus. Like, Maybe. Slow your roll. Let's see. It's a very provocative thing. Um, so what I want to do is essentially just point out three things. And I'm basically just kind of um, introducing this text. And then there's a really, really amazing, powerful, provocative uh, sermon illustration that our dearest brother Chris is going to come and give for us. Um, so I'm sort of just a, a tiny part of this. But um, I want to point out three things to you. The merchant, the pearl, and the purchase. Okay, because there's a lot here that's not said and things that's said. So first of all, the kingdom of heaven is not the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is not like a pearl that's so valuable that if you find it, you should sell everything you own and go get it. That's not what's here. It doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl that a merchant found and then sold everything he owned and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like the merchant. So already we're like, what's going on here? This is wild. Um, and I think it's important as a very consumerist culture to acknowledge that God is not the pearl. Um, as Christians, um, we're not in a, a, a big shopping mall purchasing things that will fulfill us, and then finally we get to the store where you can purchase God, and God's the product you can buy that finally fulfills you. God's not a commodity. Um, God is not to be consumed. Actually, Scripture is clear that God is the consuming God. So we have to be careful that before we think, let's go buy the right thing. Let's buy Jesus. That's not how this works. So the pearl in here is not Jesus, most likely. I mean, it's a parable, so there's no interpretation that's like entirely impossible. But okay, three things, and I'm going to do this quite quickly. The merchant. In, in Jesus' time and in our time, 
Uh, merchants, that's a profession, that's his career. This is what he does for a living. It could be like the hairdresser, the flight attendant, but in this case, it's a merchant. Um, in our context, a merchant is like a wholesaler, like uh, people, if, you know, if maybe you own a, uh, a cool magic pantry on Boness Road and you buy stuff wholesale and then you sell it retail. You're buying and selling. In our culture, merchants aren't necessarily negative or positive. It's pretty neutral. Though we do all have kind of cultural tropes about like the negative merchant, like the, the used car salesman or that person on Kijiji that's like trying to sell you this thing for 200 bucks and then you get it and you're like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> like we all know there's like kind of shady merchants, but if you know, maybe you're a realtor and you flip houses, that, that's probably great. Um, but in Jesus's day, and everywhere in the Bible, a merchant is never a positive thing. Um, everywhere in scripture, merchant is only neutral or negative, negative connotations in the Bible. Professional merchants um, to Jesus's audience are not people who buy things of value. They're people who buy something cheap, make it look like it has value and sell it to you and make bank. Jesus uh, is in, in John chapter two, goes into the Jerusalem temple, flips over the money tables, and it says he thrusts the merchants out for buying and selling and generally exploiting and ripping people off. We don't like merchants. Jesus's audience would have been a very low class people uh, who just knew merchants are people you do not trust. They're shady, they're seedy. And then, so how provocative is this trickster Jesus we all uh, worship and love, that he would walk into this crowd of people who know merchants are up to no good, they're bad people, we don't trust them, we're, or at least we're suspicious of them. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Immediately we're like, what? That'd be like at Awaken if someone was like, the kingdom of heaven is like a Republican. <laughs> We'd be like, wait, no, no, the kingdom of, and we all of a sudden would realize like, wait, why, that's probably not healthy that we would react that. Hmm. So there's an immediate provocative challenge, a merchant. Okay, number two, pearls. In our culture, pearls are like a beautiful thing, like one of many kind of precious gems, uh, you know, pearls. In Jesus' day, however, and I got a really cool story here, um, pearls are the most precious of all uh, stones, gems. A pearl's not really a stone or a gem, but it's the most precious. It's more precious than rubies. Um, pearls are the most valuable kind of like I don't know, what am I trying to say? It's not a gem or a precious stone, but it kind of is. Just go with it, a luxury item. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Like emeralds, diamonds, rubies, pearls. So we got a merchant who's looking for pearls. So here's a merchant who knows what he wants and he wants the nicest of the things. He's looking for pearls. No one in Jesus's audience owned pearls. They're extremely valuable, extremely expensive, something only like the wealthiest would have. Here's an interesting story, a true story. There, uh, uh, just before Jesus' time, like about 25, 30 years, there's a story about Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Cleopatra makes a wager with her lover, Mark Antony, that she could consume 10 million sesterces uh, at one banquet, one banquet, which was about $1 million worth of food and drink at one meal. This is a wager. So this is luxury, this is elite like privilege and decadence. And so what she does is um, sits down and has like a sort of normal meal for Egyptian royalty, which is no, not quite a million dollars, not even, even, not even close probably. But then dessert comes and her servants bring her a bowl of strong vinegar and she takes out one of her pearl earrings, puts it in the bowl and the vinegar dissolves it and then she drinks the vinegar and wins the wager. Cause she consumed the pearl that's worth nearly a million dollars. Here's another cool thing for the Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking to. Pearls aren't really kosher, because guess where they come from? Shellfish in the ocean. So pearls themselves are not, not kosher, but mm, the source is kind of, you know, not allowed. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2.9, a text that 
all Christian women everywhere love. I'm just joking. When we know how it goes, we love it. But in 1 Timothy 2.9, it's like women should dress modestly. And then we usually stop there, and then we're like, no spaghetti straps, no bikinis. Um, but actually, the text is modestly not braiding their hair, wearing gold, or wearing pearls. It means don't flaunt your wealth at church. Keep your privilege at the door. Come in, and then you're equal and treated like the people here who are poor. So there's a problem in the early church with these women who would come in with pearls. These are like Cleopatra-level privileged people. First Timothy is also the book, chapter 6, it says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Pearls are not mentioned um, in the Gospels except in Matthew. We have do not cast your pearls before swine. So thinking of pearls as the nicest of all the nice things, in Revelation 21, it says uh, the gates of heaven, the heavenly gates, are made 12 gates of pearls. 12 pearls. Beautiful. And then lastly, the thing about pearls I want to tell you is that, the, guess what the Greek word for pearl is? This might blow your mind. If you already know it, like, good for you, you're so cool. Why haven't you told me this? Um, the Greek word for pearls, so wherever it occur, occurs in the Bible, is the word margarita. The Greek word for pearl is margarita. And so I read this morning a story of a woman who uh, ha had struggled with the disease of alcoholism, and it cost her everything. And her drink of choice was a margarita. That was her pearl of great price. Thirdly, the purchase. The purchase. Here's a man who's actively seeking pearls. He's not just walking around and is like, whoa, there's a nice treasure, I'm gonna go get it. He's looking for pearls. He's maybe been looking for it his whole life. Maybe that's his thing, he's a pearl merchant. Um, he finds a very good one and immediately liquidates his assets to buy it. Everything he owns, that phrase, sold everything he had, um, implies it's not just his savings account, it's like his house, his food, his clothing, everything. Food, clothing, shelter, liquidates, sells it because he knows what he wants and he finds it and he knows its value and he sells everything and gets it. He doesn't technically, perhaps, sacrifice anything for the pearl because as we know, pearls are worth a lot of money. So we could assume, perhaps, that he's now going to turn around and sell the nice pearl and get a nicer house, nicer clothes, nicer stuff. This is not about sacrifice. He doesn't sell everything he owns and give it to the poor. He sells everything he owns to buy something that's worth everything he owns plus. The story does not tell us, however, that he actually goes to sell the pearl. We don't know what he's going to do with it. So we're left in the tension, okay? Um, but we do know that if, you know, the pearl, he impoverishes himself for the pearl, but owning this pearl makes him very wealthy. Brilliant. Okay. This man's life is forever changed by this purchase. A merchant is buying and selling. A pearl merchant is buying pearls, selling pearls, buying pearls, selling pearls. But this pearl, you sell everything you own to buy it. He's no longer a merchant. He's no longer buying pearls. He has the thing. It changes his life forever. He finds something unexpected and reimagines his future, reconfigures his life. The magnitude of the life change cannot be overstated. He is no longer what he was upon finding the thing he's always sought. He sells and buys a luxury item with no practical use. Presumably, once he purchases it, he's no longer a merchant. So here, uh, I would like to uh, bring Chris up in just a moment here, but I want to just draw this final um, thing out of this beautiful parable. Oh, you can stay at the text, sorry. We, in many ways, are merchants in our life. We are constantly buying and selling uh, time, money, ourselves uh, to upgrade for something newer, for something better. We're climbing the ladder. We're, we're consumers. We are. We all are. Um, if I looked at your bank statement, I could try and guess your priorities, right? If I looked at your Netflix history, I could guess your priorities. Like, wow, all eight seasons in one weekend? Ah, like I would know. So, so we're all sacrificing things for something. We're all going for something and, and, and wanting it. 
So I think what this parable does for us, which is very profound and subtle, is it's asking you if you know what it is that you're looking for. What is the thing that you're looking for in your life? When was the last time you took a close stock of your priorities? What is it that you're looking for? Will you recognize it when you find it? The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who knows what he's looking for. He knows what his priorities are. And when he sees it, he recognizes it. And immediately, nothing else matters. What is it that your heart is looking for? And for what would you sell everything to own? Family? Status? Justice? Peace? Everybody just get along. I would give anything for there to just be no more conflict. What's the thing? When was the last time you took stock of your priorities and asked yourself, what are the things I'm sacrificing for? What am I looking for? This parable, interestingly, does not tell you what you should be looking for. It doesn't wink at you and say, better be Jesus. It just leaves it. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who knows what he wants, and he found it, and he sold everything, and then he had it, period. Suddenly, it's a very challenging text. It doesn't tell you what you should desire. It doesn't tell you what you should prioritize. The parable simply asks if you are aware of what you are currently desiring. If you know what it is that you're sacrificing for. If you really understand your own heart, and of course, to quote Mary Oliver, what is it that you're doing with your one wild and precious life? Do you know? The kingdom of heaven is like the merchant who knows. And if you could do this work, it might take some therapy, should go for some walks, look at your real priorities in your life, then maybe you could start to wonder, how would your neighbor answer that question? How does the person sitting beside you right now, what's their thing? And it might be the case that we would all discover that the compass of our hearts are pointed in the same direction. But we don't know, he just leaves it. So take inventory of your life. It's a provocative challenge to consider yourself and what it is that you're spending your life on. And when there's something of value in front of you, do you recognize it? Can you see it for what it is? Or does it go on by? And so there's an amazing example of uh, not knowing what you desire and, and desiring things and getting things and then beautiful. And I don't want to tell the story, so Chris is going to tell the story. Um, so Chris, my brother, please come. Um, so Chris is going to share a, a bit of his story. And if you don't know Chris, um, uh, just about exactly a year ago, um, he kind of was like dragged up onto the shore of Awaken yeah. in like a million broken pieces in like the pit of Sheol, very shamed. Um, and you've just journeyed with like the softest moldable heart for the last year. And at the end of this summer, um, Chris is going moving to Ontario. And it's a pretty beautiful look at this year. And so at the end of Chris's story, uh, which is this sermon analogy. Um, we are going to pray for Chris and, and send him and bless him in, in his pursuit of what his heart desires and uh, continue to be his community from even afar. So thank you for your willingness to be vulnerable and share your story. And uh, yeah, teach us about this kingdom of heaven. Thanks, Nikayla. Um, hello, friends, family, community, uh, siblings. I am Chris, and everything that Nikayla just said is absolutely true. It's been hell this year, uh, a hell of my own making. What was the phrasing? You said something about um, man unexpectedly finds what he was looking for, sells everything to get it. Um, 
I forget exactly how you worded it, but that's my story, except it's not a victory story. It's not a happy story, at least not at first. It's becoming more and more one, but I want to tell you, share my story partly as a warning, but partly as a message of hope. Most of you do know a little of my story. Uh, some of you know much more of my story than you ever wanted to because I tend towards oversharing. Uh, when someone accidentally cranks open the fire hydrant of sadness and regret and grief and shame, and that's happened to a number of you a number of times, I feel a little bad about that because it's often uncomfortable and we're 14 seconds into me talking, I'm already doing it. So um, anyway, some of you know an awful lot about uh, my story from the last couple of years, and some of you know just the basic details. Some of you don't know me or my story at all, except now you know not to ask me how I'm doing if you're not emotionally prepared for a shipping container's worth of baggage. I'm doing better at that. Um, I've done a lot of healing. God has done a lot of healing in me, and he has done the lion's share of that healing through this place and these people. Um, it's mostly through Awaken that God has saved me. And I'm going to return to that thought later, after all the oversharing. No, I'm going to try not to do too much of that. But I do want to begin by recognizing that this is a big deal to me. Nikayla started by saying this is a special day for her, and a special day for me as well. And um, it is a very big deal for me to be here doing this. I've given well over 700 sermons in my life. I've officiated at um, many dozens of weddings and funerals, given countless lessons at youth groups, kids clubs, VBSs, and day camps, but not for the last year. I'm very comfortable speaking about Jesus in front of people and sharing about myself in front of people. And for many years, I saw doing so as my primary usefulness to the kingdom of God. It was a gift given by God himself, and I used that gift for many years with humility and appreciation and with the hope of bringing glory to our beautiful Jesus. And then I squandered that gift in spectacularly destructive fashion. I sold everything in the vernacular of our parable. I sold everything for the wrong kind of pearl. And losing my purpose and my passions and my people, most of my people, has been the terrible price I've had to pay for that wrong kind of pearl. That may sound overly dramatic. I assure you it's not. And so despite those thousands of times speaking about Jesus in front of people, this time is very different to me. It's very special. There are many people who think I shouldn't be doing this. There are people who would be actively offended or personally hurt if they knew I was doing this. And I understand that. And I want to honor that. If any of them are hearing, I understand you. Nikayla will tell you that I had to be convinced into accepting this invitation. But the grace and affirmation of Jesus, spoken largely through the grace and affirmation of our incredible pastor and you incredible people, uh, is the reason that I um, accepted the invitation and uh, I'm very thankful for it. I am speaking to you not as your sermonizer, but as your sermon illustration, as Nikayla said, and there's a key uh, distinction there. I want the story of my life to be an example to you of what Nikayla was talking about. I feel bad that I robbed us of extra Nikayla time, teaching time, um, because she could have dug way into that and we all would have loved it. But um, let this be a bit of an illustration to you. I can't communicate to you how much this means to me. Again, so thank you, Nikayla, for trusting me. Thank you, elders, uh, Amy, Eric, and Aaron, uh, for trusting me. And thank you, church, for trusting me with this. I'm hopeful that my broken story can mean something to you. But enough about me. Let's talk about me. 
So I thought that was really funny when I wrote it. And it's okay if it wasn't. I was a pastor for 16 years in a tiny village about an hour north of Edmonton called Clyde. Not Clive. That's our arch enemy because they sound so similar. They're a little bigger. People have heard of them a little more. We are not Clive. Clyde. Population about 450. Childhood home to Brent Bilodeau, who was drafted in the first round of the 1991 NHL draft by the Montreal Canadiens and who was a failure. But he had a sign out front, uh, welcome to Clyde, home of Brent Bilodeau. I've never met Brent Bilodeau, but his parents are my grandma's closest neighbors and I helped them move in April 2020 and they gave me a ladder. So small towns are the best. Uh, you kind of know everybody. Um, I also, so I was a pastor for quite a while, and I also worked for 15 years in the local school, Eleanor Hall School, population about 225, K-9, to named after a principal that everyone hated. But the old farmers were like, you're never changing that name, so you do what old farmers tell you to do. Uh, I worked in every single one of those grades, K-9 to at some point, but every year I was in kindergarten. That's my jam. I love kindergarten. Dancing to alphabet songs, making numbers with Play-Doh, playing house, Receiving a thousand hugs a day because they love you and respect you unconditionally, yeah, that is definitely my jam, and I miss it. I actually grew up in Clyde myself, maybe I didn't mention that. I went to Eleanor Hall School myself, kindergarten to grade nine. I was hired by the school who knew me as a raggedy junior high kid, um, and that's all very special. I was actually hired by my former social studies teacher at the school. I'm telling you, small communities are the best. I was deeply invested in Eleanor Hall School and in Clyde Christian Bible Church. I saw my primary ministry not necessarily as a pastor to Christians, but as an education assistant to vulnerable children in the community. I went there as a kid to the school and the church. I worked there for nearly half my life at both. My wife worked there at both, and my two daughters, Zoe and Tegan, also went there. That was home to me. And of course, that's the most important part of the story, those names that I just mentioned. I was married, and technically still am, to an excellent woman who probably wouldn't want me to name her in this context. And I am a father of two excellent young women who are entering a naturally confusing and painful time of their lives. Tomorrow, actually, is my firstborn Zoe's birthday. She turns 14 tomorrow. And they enter this confusing and painful time with the extra pain and confusion of being several hundred, or several thousand kilometers away from the only home they've ever known and the only father they've ever known aside from Jesus' father, God himself, whom I believe my girls know and love, and possibly more so since their father harmed and betrayed them. Please, if you think of it, please pray for my family. They're the most direct victims of the story that I'm going to tell you about. I paint this picture for you of a beautiful, simple life in a beautifully simple place to show what I had. And I, you, you don't have those things, but they, they were gifts that were given to me gifts that I had been called to, that were, were given by God to me. And it was a very good life in Clyde. And working in both the school and the church meant that I was connected with everyone in the community. I knew almost everybody. And had built 15 years worth of trust and reputation. I'm telling you, small communities are the best. I loved it. That's why I like, I say I'm from Bones, not from Calgary now. Smaller communities are better. I was the right man in the right place for the right work. And I saw the grace in that for many years. I was humbled by all this and deeply appreciative of the community that God had made me a central figure within. I had purpose, I had passion, and I had my people. I knew my place in the kingdom and it was good. I had been given my pearl or my pearls of great price. 
I didn't even have to search very far to find it. It was the community that I grew up in. And it was beautiful, and it was rare, and it was precious. It was a gift, all of it. And then, beginning in January 2021, for reasons that are both illegitimate and unnecessary to discuss for our purposes this evening, I began an affair with a married woman in my church. Now, before I continue, I, uh, I want to say a few things. That could be really triggering to people. I don't know. Maybe you have experience with um, an affair in your life or somebody you love, and maybe it's hard to hear about that. Maybe it's hard to hear about fatherly abandonment. Maybe it's hard to hear about pastoral indiscretions. I want to honor that. If you need to go, if it's too much, if it's bringing up too much dirt in your own life, feel free. Like, I won't recognize it as shaming me, but as you taking care of yourself. So if it's too much, find a space where, where you can take care of yourself. I get it. The other thing I want to say, I'm going to say some pretty heavy things. I'm okay. I probably will cry, but I'm okay. Uh, I'm going to use words like despair. Um, there's mention of some heavy things. I don't bring them up for sympathy. As you'll see, I don't deserve any of that. I just... I have to go into the, the deep so that there can be good that comes out of it, and I want you to know that I'm okay. So, just right off the beginning, I'm not perfectly okay, but I'm okay. So, the affair. She came to me, her pastor, for help with her failing marriage and abusive husband. To my unending shame, it led me to take the lead in a torrid sexual and emotional chain of unfaithfulness. I was no better than her husband. I didn't abuse with my hands or words, but it was objectively a form of spiritual abuse since she was a vulnerable sheep in my flock. And that's a really heavy thing to admit to. Though she came for help with her failing marriage, I am the reason for a failed marriage of my own. As an excellent woman and two excellent children, had their entire lives ripped from them as they now work to heal and rebuild in, in southern Ontario. What's more, I threw a beautiful church community, and part of the reason I was so drawn to you, Awaken, is you remind me so much of my, my home church. They, too, have this outlandish love for people who are vulnerable and outcasted. They're very open and welcoming. You remind me a lot of, of my home. And uh, I would ask that if you pray for my family, to also pray for my church family, Clyde Christian Bible Church. They are your servant-hearted siblings in Christ, and they never saw this coming, and their wounds are deep, and they weren't prepared for any of it. I was a pillar in the community, but there were fatal cracks and flaws in my craftsmanship that caused the pillar to collapse, doing damage to a great many people in the process. And there's no good reason for any of it. As I think about it now, there's no excuse to make the affair worthwhile, and now I have to work hard every day to keep my head above the waters of depression and shame to try to rebuild a very broken life. There is success in that, thankfully, by the grace of God, but it's hard work. Again, these are simply the consequences of my actions. I don't say this for sympathy. I've left many victims, including those I love most, or should have loved most. Turns out I love myself the most. And I have done so much damage for such flimsy, selfish reasons. And the pain that I feel and the pain that I forced on others is really, really heavy. But in my pain, I have sought after and received in measures I never thought possible, both abundant love and ridiculous acceptance from Jesus himself, experienced through this community and others. Your love and acceptance saved me, straight up. 
but we're not talking about that just yet. I could go on and on about the causes and consequences of my affair, as poor Glendon and Dallas and Dave and especially Nikayla can tell you. I've got no problem sharing or oversharing. In fact, um, this isn't the time to do so, but if you want to pick my brain, please do. I want to make myself available for the next six weeks. I know my story hurts people, but I hope God can also use it to help and heal people. I'm an open book. If you want to flip through my pages, I'm very willing to do so. Just let me know. Nothing's out of bounds. I don't mind talking about it. Just not right now. So, I tell you all of this to set the stage by telling you a bit about the beautiful pearls that I was given. They're not everyone's pearls. You do not need to have a spouse and kids and church work to be of value, but they were my pearls. I squandered them by pursuing the wrong kind of pearl to the great pain of so many. I want to do several quick things and then I'll be done. I want to reread the parable. I want to make one brief reference to trickster lore. I want to tell you one small personal story and then I want to wrap this up before I dissipate into a puddle of ugly crying. So, here's Matthew 13, 45 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. As Michaela says, it's the merchant. It's not the pearl. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Trickster Jesus, that's our series. And you know what the greatest trick a trickster can pull is? The Greek myths are full of stories like this. The greatest trick of a trickster, the trickiest trick of a trickster, is to give someone exactly what they want and then watch the chaos unfold. Hi, Joy. That's the premise of W.W. Jacobs' classic horror story, The Monkey's Paw. Anybody ever read The Monkey's Paw? I've not. But I have seen the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode with the monkey's paw, and I really enjoy that. Um, in the story, in the, the Simpsons story, Homer buys an enchanted monkey's paw from a merchant, a shady merchant, who claims that the item is cursed. Homer ignores him and makes his three wishes, and the monkey paw grants each of Homer's demands, although the unforeseen consequences are devastating. In the end, Lisa asks the monkey paw for world peace. How could you go wrong with world peace? And everybody throws all their weapons in this... They turn their, their weapons into plowshares and uh, missile silos become gardens and it, they, everybody joins hands and makes a peace sign on the, all across the continental US and then aliens come and the humans have nothing to defend themselves with and they, they become their slaves. So uh, just remember that next time you pray for world peace, kids, you don't know what you're asking for. But sometimes there are consequences to getting exactly what you want, just like the trickster monkey paw. Sometimes what you want leads to destruction for you and those around you. Sometimes the pearls we pursue are poisonous and pollutive and very, very painful. Now, I'm not suggesting that our trickster Messiah is the one who gave me the selfish desires of our heart. He, I don't believe he gave me the, the affair and was like, okay, here you go, you can have this, but just wait and see the consequences, you dummy. It's not, Jesus isn't the monkey's paw that gave me what I wanted, obviously. People didn't suffer so much just so I could learn a lesson. But I introduce you to the monkey's paw and the trickster's curse of fulfilled wishes to highlight the fact that getting what you desire is often the most destructive thing imaginable. You probably have stories like this in your own lives. God didn't trick me into giving me an affair. Rather, I deceived myself into believing that I could have everything I wanted while still maintaining the life that I valued pre-affair. I had all the pearls I needed and wanted but I thought I could add one more to the string of pearls I'd collected and it tore the entire necklace apart. 
My wife didn't lead me to have an affair. It's not her fault. The stresses of pastoring during COVID didn't lead me to have an affair. Trickster Jesus didn't lead me to have an affair. The woman I gave myself so fully to and so destructively to, she didn't lead me to have an affair. I led myself into an affair. I was responsible. I was the merchant searching in the wrong place for the wrong sort of treasure. So I want to share one quick story from the aftermath of the affair uh, having to do with uh, uh, today's parable. After losing every, it's actually the reason why, um, yeah, this little story is directly connected to this. That's why I'm sharing it. Um, after losing everything, which is uh, what I knew I deserved, um, that shock and that loneliness and that misplaced valuation on the wrong kind of pearl, all of that led to a heightened sense of despair and depression, shame and longing for what I once had. This all came to a head around Christmas time holidays, right? Um, that was the most depressed I have ever been. I wanted to die, literally. I wasn't going to do anything about that wanting to die, but I wanted to die feeling that that was what was deserved and feeling that that was the only way for those I've harmed to find healing if I was just out of their lives forever. I really believe that. I don't anymore, but I did. And it was around this time between Christmas and New Year's that I was driving home uh, to Edmonton and the words of this parable struck me with atomic force, that I had made her my pearl of great price. I had sold, lost everything to gain her. Um, I had abandoned every value I had ever, ever had for her. I was like the margarita woman. Um, I lost everything. It wasn't from a, a drink. It was from another vulnerable person who I should have loved with agape rather than eros. She herself had warned me about this, even in the midst of the affair. The Holy Spirit had been desperately trying to redirect me back to their guidance, and I shrugged them off every time. So realizing, letting this all hit me, I wept the entire hour's drive home. A broken man realizing he'd sold everything and had absolutely nothing to show for it. This guy at least had a pearl of great price after he sold everything. I had nothing. I thought I had nothing. I told Nikayla about this realization shortly afterwards, when her and David invited me to their house for New Year's. More on that shortly. So when this parable was added to the sermon series, she knew it was of intense meaning to me personally. She asked if I would share this story with you. The title of the story being, The Wayward Merchant Who Got the Destructive Pearl He Sought After and Sold Everything For, But There Is a Happy Ending. Kind of. It still hurts to read these words. I've averted my eyes from that screen several times. Um, they're like a knife to my heart still. Because like the merchant in the parable, I assessed the pearl before me. It looked beautiful and captivating. I became obsessed with the idea of adding this pearl to my collection of legitimately beautiful pearls. I began neglecting all the other pearls I'd already been gifted and ultimately sold everything I had, every good thing that gave me purpose and joy and peace and fulfillment, and I squandered all of it for one illegitimate pearl for no good reason other than I wanted it and I thought that it wanted me. Ultimately, I turned my back on the true pearl of great price, and that is a very heavy thing to grieve. And in doing so, in turning my back on the pearl of great price and all the other pearls I'd been given, I watched those other pearls roll as far away from me as possible. Thankfully, other people 
are picking them up and taking proper care of them. But many of those beautiful pearls are scarred and scuffed and suffering because of me. Many of the pearls will never want anything to do with me again, which I understand and respect. And finally, after losing all the pearls I devalued in my selfish pursuit, I even lost the pearl I had given everything up for in the first place. I assessed the value of this pearl wrongly. I assessed it with my own selfish desires rather than God's selfless agape love. Um, to quote Psalm 146, thank you for reading Psalm 146, Logan and Dion. Um, there's a song that I really love based on that and made me think of that. But right in there, there's the verse, the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And yeah, it does, let me tell you. I was an unwise merchant. I valued the wrong things. And now I'm forced to rebuild from the ruins of my wayward pearl assessment. I share this with you as a warning for the cost of bad pearl assessment. Be a better merchant than me. We all make small, micro mismanaged misassessments. Some bad pearl assessments are more dangerous than others. And we know what they are. I knew what it was, and I did it anyway. Don't be like me. Um, so I share this as a warning, but thankfully there has been rebuilding by the grace and goodness of our faithful, outrageously loving God. Mine is a painful story filled with shameful details and squandered values. Uh, it's a story of warning, but I am humbled to tell you it's also a story of hope. There have been good things, and I can see them, and I am thankful. There are healthy lessons. For example, I learned that control is also a pearl to me. After the affair became public, I couldn't control how people responded to me, and that was scary and depressing, and I'm an Enneagram too, so I want people to like me, um, and people didn't like me. Uh, I couldn't control how they responded, and that was terrifying, but also very freeing. It was a good lesson for me. I was never in control in the first place. During the affair, I was absolutely in control of myself and absolutely out of control of myself at the exact same time, and I never thought to give control over to the one who was actually in control. And I'm learning that. As a consequence of my sinful actions, I've had to trust repeatedly in the goodness and providence of God. No job? Trust God. Mounting debt? Trust God. Girls don't want to talk to me today? Trust God. I'm still their dad. Vehicle's engine blew up? Blame Glenn. I mean, trust God. That's a little wink to my friend back there. Thinking that there will never be a place in the kingdom for me again, well, I've really had to trust God. Believing that my destructive sin is too massive for even the all-encompassing grace of Christ, well, it takes a lot of trust in that grace. Feeling like a leper that no self-respecting church community would ever welcome through their doors, trust God. And thankfully, Awaken has no self-respect when it comes to broken sinners like me. Thank you for welcoming everyone. I put in what work I can, and then I trust the rest to the gracious hands of God. That's a gift that I've received in this aftermath, something I didn't do well before, but I've had to learn how to do now. I hope you do better at it than I did. These are lessons I should have learned without needing the ruination of an affair to teach me. In fact, as a pastor, these are lessons that I taught repeatedly, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and still they didn't sink in until it was all gone, and I had nothing left except the ridiculous, immeasurable, unbelievable love of Jesus Christ. In my desperation, I'm finally learning what is truly valuable. Give up control, because I don't have it anyway. I'm not in control of anything in my life, ultimately. So give it to God. He wants it. 
Sacrifice your desires. It's what God wants that really matters, not what Chris wants. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Chris, because when you seek the kingdom of God, he gives those good things to you anyway. Those, that peace and that fulfillment that I, that I lost, I had it because I was seeking the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Chris. Trust your good shepherd. Don't always trust your own urges. You know that follow your heart thing? Don't do that all the time. It's not, it's not, it's not often good. So these are the pearls I've relearned the value of. Even before the affair, I put too much value on pleasing people, performing roles, preserving reputation, projecting image, on and on and on. And there's, there's always been so much selfishness and ego and wayward desire. We all do this. We all value the wrong pearls in the wrong ways. Not everyone's wrong assessment is quite as destructive as mine, but we all do it. None of us are innocent of it. We all screw up the most basic calls. Love God, love neighbor. Seek the kingdom first, give sacrificially, lay down your life for the glory of our God in order to find life and life eternal. These are simple things that take it a lifetime to learn. We all mess them up. There is grace. And those are the pearls that I'm relearning are beyond valuable. Having lost everything and having nothing except those pearls is a beautiful thing in some ways. Laying down selfish desires, taking up the cross, so that you can find a beautiful life in Jesus. That's always been the pearl of great price to me, but I put that aside for something shinier, and now it's time to reassess. Okay, I'm almost done. There's so much more I want to say, but that's enough of fair talk for now. Again, if you have any questions, or if my experience can be of service to you in any way, I'm absolutely willing to talk about any part of my story. I'm here for another six weeks, and uh, then I'm just a text or Facebook message away. I would like to be helpful. If I'm going to have this destructive story, I might as well put it to use. But I do want to close with something important to me. Um, this morning at the church I go to, this morning they read uh, 1 Corinthians 12. The sermon was on 1 Corinthians 12, and there's right at the tail end of that, verse 26, it says, if one part of the body suffers, then every part suffers with it. So I've been up here telling you how I'm suffering and forcing you to suffer with me. And you've done, you've been very good. Thank you for your grace. Then it says, if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. It's important to me to honor you for all the goodness and healing that you've done for me. So before Nikayla comes up and cleans up this mess that I've made for the last half hour, I believe that, I believe in honoring people who are worthy of it, and that's all of you. And all this dark stuff that I've mentioned, as I was writing this, I wanted to pause and be like, but you were there for me, or like, I saw God's goodness through you to the point where it was getting really annoying to me. That no matter how dark and how bad it got, it was like, but Awaken was there for you, and other people were too. I was never truly alone, no matter how alone I felt. In September, in the weeks immediately following the disclosure to my wife, as my life disintegrated around me because of what I did, I was desperate. There's a thousand terrible things I could have done, and a few that I did do in my search for some kind of healing. But the healthiest thing I did was zoom into a little church in Calgary that I'd always wanted to learn from when I was a pastor. I knew I couldn't attend any church in person, I thought, being covered in the filthy rags of disgrace and unfaithful failure, but I also knew I needed God's word in my ears and eventually in my mind and heart. So I tried out Awaken, thankful to sit sheepishly in the online shadows and be ignored. By the way, greetings to all of those on Zoom today. That was me for a while, and I was happy to just quietly lurk in the shadows. 
But that's not what happened. Megan was on Zoom, and she immediately made a big deal of greeting me warmly. Megan's been a friend for like 15 years. She was my primary connection to this place initially. And then from the pulpit, Nikayla made a big welcome to me as well, named me. I don't know if she even remembers this, but we had never even met at this point. We had exchanged a couple Facebook messages about sermons I was writing. That was it. And she was like, Chris, you're here. You're welcome. I thought that I would uh, just be quietly ignored and that I could take. Instead, I was given. Uh, I was aggressively welcomed. I was relentlessly accepted. It was almost rude how kind you were to me. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And that's been the gift that all of you have continued to give me in the past 10 months. Nearly every step of healing I've taken has either been initiated by Awaken, inspired by Awaken, or ingrained in me through Awaken. You showed me just how limitless the grace of Christ can be. And I know it's because you yourselves are searching for that same grace. We're all in this together, and there's a beautiful sense of that here. It's not top-down, it's all together. I'm walking through a long, often barren wilderness. That was the topic of the very first sermon that I heard here at Awaken, wandering through the wilderness. But God is there in that wilderness, and you, my siblings, are there with me as well. And I'm here with you. I didn't step out of the boat in faith so much as I capsized myself into the thrashing waves of failure and faithlessness and fear. But whose hands were there to lift me repeatedly out of the tumultuous seas? Well, Jesus' nail-pierced hands, of course. But whose hands did he use? Well, they're not here, sadly. They're always here, and they're not here. He used the hospitable hands of Dave King, who essentially allowed me to be an unpaying roommate for months when I'd commute down from Edmonton for the weekend to come to Awaken, and he never expected repayment. And Corrine fiercely fought for me in my job searches. She made sure my needs were taken care of. She welcomed me like family, being so hospitable as to even let me use her car for a week when mine went belly up. Dave and Corrine have the hands of Jesus. You know this. You've experienced it too. And God used the kind, hilarious, artful hands of Glendon Frank, with whom I bonded over the nerdiest of film discussions, and whose depth of care demonstrated an acceptance that went beyond just surface-level shared interests in movies. I often get overwhelmed with emotion during music time and communion time in church here, and there were times where, in the pit of grief, a strong and gentle hand would rest on my back, and it was my brother Glendon reassuring me that I am loved. Glendon has the hands of Jesus. And he used the skillfully musical hands of Darcy Watcham, who is not here today. Where is Darcy? Darcy is the mouthpiece of acceptance for Awaken. Darcy gave me the great gift of playing music in a church again, which is the grace of once again being free to use the gifts I thought I'd lost forever. It's just drums, but it's never been just drums to me, right, Dallas? It's never just drums. And my friend Darcy recognized that and refused to let me cave to despair. His are the hands of Jesus. And he used the tiny, imaginative, unconditionally loving hands of the kids of Awaken, although I want to especially acknowledge Harriet and Ember and Raven. One of the most precious pearls in my previous life was the children of Clyde who I loved and worked with, and most importantly, my own two beautiful children. I was used to dozens of hugs every day, playing, being silly, singing songs, high fives, just generally investing in kids. And for months, I had none of that, which I grieved deeply. But then I'd come here on Sundays, and Harriet would pick me a dandelion for my hair, um, and Raven would introduce me to his toy pet dolphin, and Amber would give me a secret handshake with the new weird bearded guy. And their joy managed to pierce through the hardest shells of mourning and shame. 
the children of Awaken, more than anyone, have the hands of Jesus. And along with that, he used the kindness and trust of their incredible parents as well. Amy and Jeremy, David and Kayla, uh, Reynolds, Edworthy's, Harvey, Shorten, Steigenbergers, see Merritt's are here today, and so many others. I'm sure I'm forgetting people. Those kids are a blessing to us all. And you are all tremendously gifted and loving parents. You too have the hands of Jesus. And Jesus used the powerful, marginalized, stubbornly faithful hands of my dear friends Anna, Bryn, Dino, and Osi. And after bonding over karaoke last night, I need to add Ari. It is um, almost embarrassingly reductive to lump you all together like this, and I apologize in advance, but I don't group you together as my queer friends. <laughs> I group you together as my dear friends who happen to be queer. Friends who have taught me more than you can know about the persistence, uh, about persistence through victimhood, about the freedom of knowing who you are created to be, about accepting an enemy, white hetero male, the balding face of bigotry itself, <laughs> as a friend. To my knowledge, I've never had friends who are lesbian, transgendered, pansexual, or any other beautiful color of the rainbow other than some shade of hetero. To my knowledge, they probably have been and I don't know. And then I go to Leopold's after church one Sunday and it's just Chris and the queers and hallelujah, it is a beautiful thing. I've made mistakes with you. Maybe that joke was a mistake. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. I've made mistakes with you and I've experienced grace. I've learned from you and experienced healing. Thank you. You belong, of course, you belong. But you also let me know that I belong too. And I, I doubted that. Often. My friends, yours are no less the hands of Jesus just because so many in the church at large refuse to see them as such. We see your hands at work and they're strong and selfless and beautiful. And he used the agelessly wise, unbelievably gorgeous hands of a young intern here at Awaken who is quick to listen to, and even quicker to affirm the worth of, a very broken pastor, who in a less broken world would have been thrilled to serve as your mentor. Instead, Dallas became a mentor to me. You and Tatiana have been very dear friends to me, and I'm incredibly grateful for your gentle nature and the huge collection of giftings that you have. I can't wait to see how you grow as the hands of Christ in a pastorship position. You'll be great at it. Awaken was and is blessed to have you among us, Dallas. Thank you for demonstrating the hands of Christ to me. And to Megan the Swamp Witch, I wouldn't be here without you, literally. This is all your fault. I love you, even though you probably hate the idea of me saying I love you in public. Too bad. I am very grateful for you. There are so many of you whose names and faces I have come to know and love and who have ventured to know and love me. Eric and Nadine in their quiet, humble leadership. Sarah the Smiler. My dear brother Terry. Uh, whose relentless encouragement lifts me up every week. Um, unbelievably talented musicians, unbelievably kind and gifted servants. I, I haven't named everyone, and I'm sorry. It's not because you are not of value. It's not because you are not very special to me and to this community. It's that I haven't been here long enough to get to know you well. Um, I wish I was sticking around so I could. But there's the morning prayer crew who are very dear to me. The Leopold's crew, who are very dear to me. Tuesday night Bible study crew, remember those? 
uh, gardening crew, campfire crew, advent calendar crew, potluck crew, my dear Bagginses and Boffins, Tooks and Brandybooks, Hornblowers, Bulgers, Brace Girdles, and Proudfoots. Proudfoots. Thank you, Megan. Um, Ten months is far too short to live among such excellent and admirable hobbits. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Which doesn't make any sense when Bilbo says it, and doesn't make any sense when I say it. And then, I'm about to slip off on an adventure like Bilbo Baggins to Ontario, having been loved and accepted and supported by so many hands of Christ. And that's pretty much everyone I think I need to thank. No glaring omissions, right? Wrong. There's a very, very short list of people who have exhibited the hands and heart of Christ as selflessly as our dear Reverend Rees. Nikayla has been there for me as she's been there for so many of you in ways too numerous to reference. You and David literally saved me. When you texted me before Christmas and invited me to your home, you did so at a time when I was dangerously despairing. I had no home that I could go to and feel welcome and safe in, and the people I wanted to see most for the holidays were a four-hour plane ride away. So I had Christmas and later New Year's with the pastor's family, and it unbuckled so much of the shame and despair that I had been shackled with. And then we jumped in the frozen boat, and I hadn't felt that alive in months. And that's just one example. How many times did I text you in a state of emotional panic or keep you on the line after morning prayers to grieve and vent or awkwardly stumble through some uncomfortable confession? How many gifts have you given of time and encouragement of magpie feathers, of reminders of my inherent worth, of my coming redemption, of my lovability in the eyes of Christ and community? And I am not the only one. I know I should see lots of heads nodding because I know I'm not the only one. How many times have you patiently heard me weep? And then, to top off the healing, you absolutely crush Lady Gaga at karaoke nights, which is what any pastor worth their calling must do from time to time. Thank you for that. I haven't missed a single morning prayer time since Nikayla first invited me in mid-September. It's become a crucial part of my weekly routine. I actually have to miss tomorrow's. Tomorrow's the first one I have to miss. I dread the day when the two-hour time difference in Ontario makes it so I can't come to morning prayers. If you've never been, you should go. It is beautiful. Um, Nikayla pre prepares some art, some poetry, some scripture, and then she prays for each of us individually with a real knack for beautifully touching on the thing, the exact thing that we're in need of prayer for in that moment. But what you don't know, Nikayla, is that I wrote down each one of your prayers for me as you were praying them, which is maybe not being present in the moment, so I'm kind of guilty of that. But it's a habit I got into because I would regularly go back to those prayers through the week, especially October to January, because I didn't have any, I didn't have those words of affirmation from anybody else, really. Um, and so when I was in the most pain, I would return back to those prayers. It was hard for me to read scripture at that time because I felt condemned by it, but I could read the words of Christ in a different way, as spoken by my sister, Nikayla. Those prayers were like sustenance, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. So... You, Nikayla, empowered by your loving family and your own story of healing, are an ex excellent example to each of us of what it means to work with the hands of Jesus Christ. Thank you for knowing what the pearl of great price is and pursuing it relentlessly on all of our behalf. In conclusion, finally, my dear Awaken, I'm just some broken guy who stumbled into this church, a disgraced adulterer, reeling with shame and regret, and you all gave me a seat at the table, which is exactly what Jesus does. You saw this tarnished pearl, as you've seen so many other tarnished pearls, 
and he helped me believe that there was God-given worth and beauty underneath the stains. Where I saw faithlessness and failure, you saw value. I will never have the pearls of great price in Clyde again. Those pearls are gone, mostly. But thank you, Awaken, for being powerful demonstrators of what the greatest pearl of the greatest price is, a sacrificial life lived in love and service to God and neighbor. Through Christ, you've made mine a story of hope. We found love in a hopeless place. <laughs> really? It was, if you weren't at karaoke here at the church last night, it was bliss to sing that together. But I'm grateful for each one of you. Thank you. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Just make sure you buy the right pearl. Um, I want to close my portion with prayer before I do the most awkward thing about a message where you are like so intimate and so give so much of yourself is like the walk back to sit down is really like okay well that's done and weird um so before i do that let's pray and i took these prayers from my collection of prayers by our pastor and she took them directly from the heart of the holy spirit so this is just a small sampling of nikaela's prayers for me and i'm praying them now for all of us jesus please don't leave us in a place of fear but give us new words, forgiven, reborn, chosen. May each of us be like a child in your car with you as the driver. And though we ask every five minutes if we're there yet, may we see you smile with joy, God, because you know where you're going. And wherever we're going, you are already there, welcoming us warmly. Help us find our way to a home that cannot be destroyed, where there is rest and healing and growth and no toiling in vain. God, we pray that you would reveal yourself in new ways, that your presence would be known in such a way that we would stand in silent awe before you, the weaver, the artist, the redeemer. You are the author, God, not us, though we do try to pry the pen from your hands. Broaden our imagination so that whatever comes to us, we would feel prepared for and surrendered to. Give us eyes to see the biggest picture, the pearl of greatest price, that we would see our place in your story, not just our story. Help us to trust that our stories in all their mess and pain have a good end filled with laughing and love. Thank you, Father, for my church family. Take good care of them, Holy Spirit. I ask you to continue to work healing into the lives of those I've harmed. And I trust you, God, and we trust you together that you're leading us in the right direction. Amen.